pray with me, please? Father, now we ask that your kindness by your spirit and your word would come to each one of us, that he would not pass by one of us, but that we might all hear what the spirit has to say to the church and we might welcome it. So God, help us now, we pray in Christ's name, amen. You can open up your Bibles to chapter 28 of the book of Acts. And we'll finish the last chapter of the book of Acts today, Lord willing. And we find ourselves, uh, the Apostle Paul has been on uh, captive as a prisoner on a prison ship, um, trying desperately to get to Rome. And you remember he started from Caesarea, and the entire way they've had horrible weather, and the ship was finally driven ashore and shipwrecked, as we'll find out today, on the island of Malta. And that's where things pick up in chapter 28, where Luke records, after we were brought safely through, because everyone survived the shipwreck, all 276 passengers, we then learned that the island was called Malta, and the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their mind and said, he was a god. Well, now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, he healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. And they also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So Paul's journey, we alluded to this last week, he, he's shipwrecked on the island of Malta. And while he's there, he's bitten by what all the natives understood to be a poisonous snake with no ill effects. And I'd just like to underscore with you that this whole business with the snake, this is not normal. Okay? This is not the normal Christian life. This is not a commendation for you to start the North Wake snake handling ministry, okay? Um, our area of the country, especially southeastern Appalachia, is known for this. And uh, a number of years back, a guy named John Wayne Brown was bitten by one of his own timber rattlesnakes in the middle of his sermon. Note to self, never handle a rattlesnake in the middle of a sermon, okay? Just be, that's a bad idea. He left five orphan children because his wife had been bitten by one of his snakes and died in the service three years earlier. Okay, this is not a commendation to a snake handling ministry. This is a commendation to the, to the Apostle Paul. It is underscoring him as one sent by Jesus. Remember in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is sending out the 72 to minister. And he says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. And again, these serpents are representative of evil. And so even more than this is a commendation of the Apostle Paul, it's a commendation of God. 
who here is overcoming evil with good, the snake as a symbol of evil, in order to keep his promises and fulfill his purposes. Now, we talked uh, last week about how even in the midst of a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, God is bringing good to his people. And we see that here, right? Paul is shipwrecked, but he's shipwrecked on an island with really kind people who care for him. He's bitten by a poisonous snake, but it has no ill effect. Um, the, the governor's father or whomever relative is, falls ill, but he's healed by Paul, and the door is open for ministry throughout the island. So even in the midst of a terrible thing, like a shipwreck, God is bringing good to Paul and through Paul. People all over the island are healed. Um, and he is being, as Christians are supposed to be, a blessing to the nations. Right? Well, after three months on the island of Malta, Luke says, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after a day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Putioli, and there we found brothers, and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. And on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. So at last, Paul is now at Rome. And this has been on Paul's heart for a long time. All the way back in Acts chapter 19, Paul's talking about getting to Rome. It says, after these events resolved the spirit... Uh, in the spirit to pass, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also go to Rome. Okay? All the way back in his third missionary journey, Paul's looking forward to getting back to Rome. And then um, the Lord came to Paul and stood by him and said, When he was a prisoner, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must also testify about me in Rome. And during the shipwreck, an angel of the Lord, last week's passage, comes to Paul at night and says, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar in Rome. So this has been, for a, a long portion of the book of Acts, consuming the consuming desire and belief of Paul that he must testify there. But you know, we could go back even farther. We go back to the first chapter of the book of Acts, right, where it says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And we talked last week how Rome had that feel of the end of the earth for someone living in Jerusalem, that it was, it was, it was far, far away, the edge of their culture, and it was also the gateway to the nations, to the rest of rest of the world. So what God has initiated in chapter 1 of the book of Acts is now being fulfilled at the back end of, of Acts in chapter 28. And in recent years, really recent decades in Christianity, um, Christian leaders and thinkers have been taking this command to go to the end of the earth even more earnestly um, as they begin to think 
and figure out and map and discern where are peoples who are yet to be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so these scholars and thinkers have developed some statistics for us. And of the 7.2 billion people on earth, 2.4 billion of them are considered unreached. That would mean less than 2% uh, Bible-believing, born-again Christians amongst their peoples. And there are distinct languages and cultures. There are almost 7,000 people who fall in that category, where less than 2% of their people in their cultures would be born-again believers in, in Jesus Christ. Now, within that group, there's an even more unreached group called the unengaged. And this is a group of people, there are a quarter of a billion people, 3, 000, more than 3,000 people groups that fall in this category. There's no missionary working to plant churches amongst them. There's no scripture, likely, in their language. There is no way for them to hear the good news about Jesus. No known believers amongst many of these peoples. They are the unreached, unengaged, the UUPGs, right? The unreached, unengaged people groups. And just as Paul labored and suffered, but with the promise that he was going to testify in Rome, we labor and we suffer and we have a similar promise. Listen to it in, in oh wait, let me show you first this map. This shows you where those most unreached peoples are living. You can see them throughout this region in Africa and in India and southern China and places like that. That's where they are. And you notice, too, that's where North Wakers are going, right? We have North Wakers living in those places, trying to reach these people. Um, but just as Paul had that promise that he would get to Rome, we have a promise about these people. In the book of Revelation, there's a picture of what's going to happen around the throne of God one day. There's a song being sung. Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Right? They're all going to be there around the throne of God. That's our promise, and this is our commission to take the good news about Jesus to the ends of the earth, to those who have not heard. Now, another thing you'll notice about Paul as he travels on all of his journeys, Paul does not travel alone. Even on this journey, as a prisoner on a ship, he has a couple of friends with him. Uh, Luke is writing this, and you remember we talked last week, we saw it already in chapter 28. He talks about, we were shipwrecked, and we were on the island of Malta. And that leads us to believe that Luke was with Paul. He's writing this down as an eyewitness. And there's another guy there whom you've probably only heard of maybe once. His name is Aristarchus. Um, Aristarchus is with Paul. And we know almost nothing about Aristarchus. Let me, let me tell you what we know. He was with Paul all the way back in his third missionary journey in Acts 19 in Ephesus. When the city was filled with confusion, they rushed together into the theater and they dragged with them a guy named Gaius and Aristarchus, who were Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. So way back in the third missionary journey, Aristarchus has been traveling with Paul. Okay, but we know almost nothing about him other than that here he took one for the team and they grabbed him instead of Paul and the mob dragged him into the, into the theater. Um, 
He's on this prison ship with Paul on the way to Rome. In last week's passage, it says they embarked a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia. We put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus. So he traveled with Paul, his third missionary journey. He's on this prison ship with Paul now. And we find later when Paul writes from Rome while he's in prison, he writes some of the letters that are in the New Testament. One of those is Colossians. And he says, Aristarchus is my fellow prisoner and he greets you. He's my fellow worker for the kingdom of God. And he's been a comfort to me. So evidently, Aristarchus is a prisoner with Paul in Rome as Paul's writing these letters now back to the people. But that's, that's all we know about Aristarchus. You just heard everything the Bible has to say about Aristarchus. Um, we, don't, we don't know anything else about him. And the Bible is full of stories of people like this around Paul who greatly encouraged him, but we don't know hardly anything about him. If you read the last chapter of the book of Romans, Paul names about a dozen and a half people that matter to him, who he wants to encourage and who have encouraged him. Um, there are people like Aristarchus. Um, there's another group of these guys in our passage. We don't even know their names. Okay? They're just brothers, just a band of brothers. That's all we know about them. It says, there we found brothers, and we're invited to stay with them for seven days. And then we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and three taverns to meet us. And on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. That is, he was encouraged. Okay. So as he's being brought to Rome as a prisoner, there are believers in Rome who hear about him, and they travel south a ways just to meet Paul and encourage him. And we don't even know their names. They're just a band of brothers who came to encourage Paul. And, and I want you to know this is powerful stuff in the kingdom. This is what the kingdom runs on. The nobodies who encourage the somebodies. Okay? The nameless, faceless believers who serve and encourage people like Paul, whom God is going to use greatly. And, and I want to encourage you uh, to see yourself amongst those nobodies that matter in the kingdom. And God is bringing alongside you. We at Northwake have a special role where people are brought here for a little while and we train them and then we send them out to do great things to God. And your friendships, your encouragement to them matters more than you know. And I ran across a really fascinating uh, article that happened, uh, it reminds me of North Wake, even though it's not about a church. Um, it's about a little town uh, from the citizens, the good citizens, the article says, of North Platte, Nebraska, who 10 days after the attack on Pearl Harbor back in World War II, heard a rumor that soldiers from their town, part of the Nebraska National Guard Company D, would be coming through on a troop train on their way to the West Coast. Okay? So... 500 people show up at the train station with gifts for their boys from Nebraska. The problem was, when the train showed up, it was not the Nebraska National Guard Company D boys on board. It was the soldiers from the Kansas National Guard Company D. So they're all standing there with all these gifts. 
It says, after a few awkward moments, a woman handed a young man she'd never seen the gifts she intended for her own son, and everyone else followed lead. And there were hugs and prayers and love shared all around. It was a spontaneous act of devotion. A few days later, um, there's a 26-year-old woman named Ray Wilson. She wrote a letter to the editor of the local paper talking about that experience and volunteering to organize a canteen, the North Platte Canteen, that would do this for all the soldiers that would come through on trains uh, coming through their town. She was willing to lead it. And for the next four and a half years, the people of North Platte and the surrounding communities met every troop train that came through their town, and every day they prepared sandwiches, cookies, cold drinks, and hot coffee. They had, they had baskets of magazines and books to give away. There were birthday cakes for anyone that was having a special day. And on some days, in this little town of North Platte, they did it for as many as 8,000 soldiers a day. 8,000 soldiers a day. The statistics are staggering. By the time the last train arrived on April 1st, 1946, 6 million soldiers had been encouraged by the North Platte Canteen. 45,000 volunteers served faithfully until the war was over and most of the troops had been transported home. Now, most of the troops, they had about 10 minutes to sprint from the train to the canteen, grab some food, maybe dance with a pretty girl, hear the appreciation of those present, and sprint back before the train left without them. But in those 10 minutes, they, they received a dose of unconditional love and encouragement that they remembered later. Now, Bob Green wrote about this in a book. It's called Once Upon a Town. And as he interviewed those few surviving soldiers for his books, they were now uh, in their 70s and 80s, late 70s and 80s, men who were actually there who rode the train through North Platte. He said there was one universal reaction from every man that he talked to, and that is that they wept. Right? See, and I want to say, hey, we're that canteen. Right? I know it drives some of you a little bit crazy because all these people keep coming to our church and then getting sent out of our church, and you fall in love with them, and then they leave. And I want to say, that's our job, Okay? We are at war. And these are the troops that God is calling to serve in front lines and places where the gospel is yet to be heard. And it's our job to encourage them and to love them. And it matters more than you know. When you Skype that family and check, when you send birthday presents to that, to that, that group of kids who are living with their family in India, when you pray for that little boy in the hospital in Papua New Guinea, it matters more than you know. This is powerful stuff in the kingdom. The nobodies who encourage the somebodies. Um, the North Platte canteens of this world. This is our role. And you see how it matters to Paul. They encourage him as he goes on to testify as a prisoner and a witness of Jesus Christ in Rome. Well, after three days in Rome... Paul called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge 
to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So Paul asks the, the Jewish leaders to come to him, and he tells them his story, and he professes his innocence. And by now, I mean, this is obviously pre-internet. They haven't heard about Paul. They don't know from the Jews back yeah, that they're after him. He's gotten there before the news has come. And so they say, what we'd like to hear about is, is the sect that you're part of, the way, the Christian, okay? And they don't know what they've just done. They just dangled a piece of raw meat in front of the Apostle Paul and said, could you tell us about what you believe? And so Paul says, you betcha, you set the day. And so they do. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And here we get right at the heart of what the Apostle Paul preaches. Okay? It's about the kingdom and the king. It's about the kingdom of God and Jesus. And because they're Jewish, he goes through the Old Testament from morning until evening, showing them how Christ is the Messiah. See, Paul is all about the kingdom and the king, who is Jesus. And this obviously is, is troublesome in Rome, the Roman Empire with Caesar. And Paul is saying there's another greater kingdom and there's a far greater king, and that's King Jesus. But the centrality of the king and the kingdom in Paul's message, hey, that's ours too. That's the center of what we want to talk to people about. When spiritual conversations happen around the water cooler, or they happen at family reunions, or they happen across the neighbor's yard, okay, it's not primarily about things like gender and marriage. We want to talk about the king and the kingdom. So we want to get to the point where we can ask questions. So who do you say Jesus is? Who do you think he is? Have you ever read his biography? Okay, not the one by Bill O'Reilly, the one in the Bible. Okay, that one by John or one by Mark. They're really short. I'd love to read it with you and hear what you think about it. Okay, that's the conversation that we want to have. We are trying to turn the conversation to Jesus. Bono paraphrases C.S. Lewis, and he presents this same challenge. Listen to what he says. He says, I think a defining question for a Christian is, who is Christ? And I don't think you let off easily by saying a great thinker or a great philosopher, because actually he went around saying he was the Messiah. That's why he was crucified. He was crucified because he said he was the Son of God. So either in my view... So he was, either in my view, was the son of God, or he was nuts. Forget rock and roll messianic complexes. This is like Charlie Manson-type delirium. And I find it hard to accept that a whole millions and millions of lives, half the earth, for 2,000 years have been touched, have felt their lives touched and inspired by some nutter who's saying Christ is the center and 
who you say Jesus is matters more than anything else. So who do you say Jesus is? What do you think about him? It's about the king and the kingdom. Who do you say Jesus is, and what do you think it means to follow him? That's the conversation that we want to have. Now, Paul is having this conversation with the Jewish leaders, and disagreeing amongst themselves, they departed after Paul made one statement. Okay? This is the one that broke up the meeting. He said, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, and he's going to quote Isaiah, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And Paul talks about something here that we are often reluctant to talk about. He talks about judgment. He says, you people, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. He's warning them of judgment because of their unbelief in Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself was terrifyingly clear on this inevitable reality for those who reject his message. In Luke, uh, this is in Luke chapter 10, he says, Woe to you, Chorazin, a city. Woe to you, Bethsaida, another city. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment, okay, Jesus believed judgment was coming for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, another city, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects me, and the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent, sent me. Jesus says, reject me, reject God who sent me. And so Paul is warning them of coming judgment because of their rejection of Jesus, even though it costs him his audience. Okay. They leave when he warns them, you're going to be judged for this position you take. It's not just some generic judgment Paul's talking about. He's talking about their judgment, the ones to whom he is speaking. And uh, there was a, a British evangelist, his name was Rico Tice, and he tells a story um, that he prefaces by saying, loving people means warning people. He says, I was once in Australia visiting a friend, and he took me to a beach on Botany Bay, so I decided I had to go for a swim. I was just taking off my shirt when he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm, I'm going for a swim. And he said, what about those signs? And he pointed me to some signs I had not really noticed. Danger, sharks. So with all the confidence of an Englishman abroad, I said, don't be ridiculous. I'll be fine. And he said, listen, mate, 200 Australians have died in shark attacks. You've got to decide whether those shark signs are there to save you or to ruin your fun. You're of age. You decide. He said, I decided not to go for a swim. Um, he goes on and says, many of the words about hell found in the Bible are all straight from Jesus' lips. They're a loving warning to us. The real reason Jesus talked about hell is because he does not want people to go there. And the reason Jesus died was so that people wouldn't have to go there. 
And Jesus is warning these Jewish leaders that because of their consistent rejection of the message of Jesus as Christ, now the message of salvation will go on to the nations. When he says Gentiles, he just means nations. Not to the exclusion of all Jews. Many Jews have believed and will, both in Paul's day and ours. Paul talked about that there would always be a faithful remnant amongst the Jews who believed in Jesus as Messiah. But clearly here, in synagogue after synagogue throughout Paul's journey, the Jewish leaders have rejected Jesus as the Christ. And as a result, God is judging them collectively and turning to a more responsive people, to the Gentiles, to the nations. And now, we're turning to the nations, and we're right back where we started, right? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, if you're following along in your Bibles, let me see if I can just briefly clear up a little problem. We're going to go from verse 28 to verse 30. And if you look in your Bibles, you'll see that verse 29 is not there. Okay? Unless you're reading the King James, at which point you're good, it's there. Okay? So what is that about? Why is verse 29 not in the English Standard Version that we're using or the New International Version or the Hardcore Southern Baptist Version or most of the modern versions uh, that you're reading? And uh, there are different streams of manuscript, ancient manuscripts that have been found over the years. The King James represent one, the ESV and the NIV represent another. And in, in the modern translations, the most modern ones that use that stream, they believe that that verse 29 was not actually in the original manuscripts based on some new research and discoveries that they found in, in recent years since the King James was written. Um, so they have not included it here. Now you need to know this is one of the biggest, uh, when, when an entire verse is in question like this, included in one version, not in another, this is one of the biggest troubles in the entire New Testament in terms of textual criticism. What's the right text? So this is a big deal. What happened to verse 29? Should it be in there? Let me, let me put your minds at ease. Let me show you what verse 29 says. Okay? It says, when Paul had said these words, the Jews departed, having much dispute among themselves. Okay? It's almost a repeat. In fact, it likely could be a repeat of verse 24. It says a very, very similar thing. This, nothing is added to our story. Nothing is added to our beliefs. Nothing is added to our doctrine. Nothing hinges on verse 29. So even though it's one of the more significant size-wise problems in the New Testament, it, nothing hinges on it. And I, I bring this up, one, just to keep you from fretting. Okay? You should trust your English Bible. It, it is based on the most reliable ancient manuscripts on earth. Nothing compares to the documents that underlie your English Bible. And this is one of the bigger problems that we have, and you can see it, it's of little or absolutely no consequence to the way our story turns out. So, read your Bible, trust your Bible, don't worry about verse 29, okay? So, we're going to finish with these two verses. Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. Essentially, he's under something like house arrest. Proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The end. Okay? That's the end of the book of Acts. And some of you are saying, 
Well, what happened to Paul? He's in prison. You can't just, what kind of ending is that? You can't just leave the good guy locked up in prison. So what happens? Well, uh, John Stott is a, a commentator. He wrote on it, and he tries to fill in the gaps from his perspective. He says, he says, was Paul released after the whole two years that Luke mentions? He clearly expected to be, and the pastoral epistles, uh, books like Timothy uh, in the New Testament, supply evidence that he was. For he resumed his travels for about two more years before being rearrested, retried, condemned, and executed in A.D. 64. That's how John Stott would piece it together for us. But Luke doesn't tell us. He just ends the story. Why would he do that? Why would he leave the main character in jail? Because Paul isn't the main character. It's really not about Paul. This is not Luke's book of martyrs. Okay? It's not a story about people. It's a story primarily about the spread of the good news of Jesus to all peoples, to people in Rome and beyond, to the nations, and to those UUPGs, those unreached, unengaged people groups. And Paul got this. He understood it. While he's in that Roman prison, he's writing this letter to the Philippians, and listen to how he talks about his imprisonment and what matters most to him. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me being in jail, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And then he says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Paul knows that the mission of God is not about Paul. He knows that the book of Acts is not about Paul. It's about something bigger and more wonderful, that God is taking the message of his love in Christ to all people. That's why the book of Acts starts with being witnesses to the ends of the earth, and it ends with Paul in Rome declaring with all boldness and without hindrance the teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we're left ringing in our ears, okay? Spread the news. Share the news. Take the news to all peoples everywhere that there is a Savior and His name is Jesus. He died on the cross for your sins and He rose on the third day. Share that. Take it to the peoples who've never heard to the very ends of the earth. And that's why there are 30, more than 35 North Wake families, um, church planners and missionaries living elsewhere, all around the globe, to tell people the story of Jesus. That's why North Wake regular folk, regular folk, travel all around the world to tell that story. Uh, there are carpenters and students and pharmacists and secretaries and coffee guys and landscapers and roofers and teachers and soldiers who have gone places like Ethiopia and Thailand and China and Malaysia and South Africa and Uganda, India, Czech, Turkey, Papua New Guinea, the Dominican Republic, Egypt, Portugal, Haiti, the UAE, Scotland, and even Martinsville, Virginia. In the last two years, from North Wake, just regular people, not professional missionaries. It's just people living out the book of Acts. At intermissions last year, over 
$30,000 is well more than that. Rob gave me a partial figure. People outbidding each other to give money to make sure that the gospel could go to the nations. And every week, we stop the middle of our services. We stop what we're doing. And the whole church bows. And we pray for one of those families somewhere around the world as they spread the good news of Jesus. Now, this week... On um, Tuesday, my youngest daughter, Abby, got back from South Africa for a month. She taught kids from Pretoria's largest slum, a slum called Mamalodi, where over a million people, there's Abby with some, Abby's in front, and there's some of her kids that she got to work with uh, in that slum outside of Pretoria. Over a million people live in shacks like this. And uh, Abby was there to help mentor these kids in math and English and, and to have the opportunity through crew to, to share the good news of Jesus with them through the relationships that they built. Every, every day the kids would journal and every night Abby would write each kid back and she could tell them about Jesus. Um, there were riots and shootings while she was there. Their project had to be shut down a couple of days because of the violence. Um, now, if she had asked me and said, Dad, I want to go to the largest slum outside of Pretoria, South Africa, on a vacation with a couple of my friends, I'd have said, Abby, you're nuts. Go to Wilmington. And if she had said, Dad, I want to go to the largest slum in Pretoria, South Africa, and I want to mentor the kids in English, I'd say, Abby, go to Franklin County. There's lots of kids up there who have terrible English. It's <laughs> where I live. I live in Franklin County. Trust me. But when she says, um, Dad, I want to go tell these kids about Jesus in the largest slum in Pretoria, South Africa. How do you say no to that? See, we, we cannot say no to that. This is our mission. This is what the book of Acts is saying to us. Share the news. Spread the news. Take it everywhere. And there's a part for your family to play in this. There's a place for your family in this mission. It may be smashing piggy banks at intermission. And it may be joining hands and praying at mealtime for um, the Robinettes that we prayed for today in the services. You may carry that home with you. Or whoever we pray for each Sunday. It may mean that you send your daughters to Africa. I've done it twice now. It's my second daughter to trust God with in Africa. It may mean selling everything and moving and learning another language so you can spread the news about the king and his kingdom. But we cannot not do this when Acts begins with this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then it ends with Paul in jail in Rome proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. It's our mission. It's our chance to share with all peoples in one way or another about the king and his kingdom. So let me invite you as the worship team comes. Church, arise. Let's hear the call of our captain. Let's worship together. Stand with me.